He's one of Ireland's most sinister and twisted killers who groomed his vulnerable victim and made her take a starring role in her own murder. In this two-part Crime World special, written by Neve O'Connor, we look back on the gruesome details of Graeme Dwyer's relationship with Elaine O'Hara and her tragic, brutal murder. We hear the text messages that passed between them in the days before her death and get a glimpse of the sickening bloodlust hidden inside this seemingly ordinary family man. And we learn how, over a year after her death, a series of miracles would lead police to Elaine O'Hara's body and to her killer. The story of Graeme Dwyer and Elaine O'Hara is a shocking one, and even I find parts of it difficult to listen to. So if you're squeamish, this episode isn't one for you, and it definitely isn't one for a younger audience, so be mindful where you listen to it. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Elaine's father, Frank, had filed the missing persons report in Stepaside Garda Station on Friday, August 24th, 2012. The desperately worried father of three gave a description of his eldest child, who was five foot four, heavy set, with shoulder length brown hair and glasses. Elaine had arranged for Frank's partner, Sheila Hawkins, to give her a lift to town the previous morning and she was supposed to have been waiting at an arranged bus stop at 7.30am, he explained. It was important that Frank stressed the fact that Elaine had plans because she also suffered from depression. But she was dealing with that, just like she was managing her asthma, irritable bowel, diabetes, high cholesterol, vertigo, polycystic ovaries and anxiety. Plus, she'd picked up her prescription on the day she'd last been in contact. The cost of Elaine's medication had been €132. Why collect the medication if she was planning on ending her life? Elaine was 36 years old and had two jobs. She worked as a teaching assistant in St John's National School in Ballybrack and also as a shop assistant in Ken's Newsagents in Black Rock Shopping Centre. But she also volunteered with the Red Cross on Tuesdays and was supposed to be stewarding at the Tall Ships Festival on Thursday. On the Wednesday, the day she'd got out of hospital, she'd called to see Frank and her niece, who was her goddaughter, at the family home at around 1.30pm. They'd visited the graveyard in Shangana where Elaine's mother was buried and then had gone back to Frank's house for ice cream. His daughter left at four o'clock, he told police. When she wasn't at the bus stop waiting for Sheila the following morning, as arranged, Sheila had knocked on her apartment door and checked the underground car park for any sign of her car, which wasn't there. That night, Sheila, who lived opposite Elaine, had kept an eye on Elaine's apartment for any sign of life, but the apartment lights had not gone on. Frank had texted his daughter, Are you still alive? But he got no reply. So the family had also gone to her apartment to see if they could find any clues as to where she'd gone. Her interest in BDSM was all too evident there. However, 
Her brother John had also found printouts of hunting knives, the Vartry Reservoir in Roundwood and Google Maps of Crua and Killikee Woods. That could mean something. Another document in the apartment, the Korean lifestyle a woman's right is slave, had to be read to be believed. Masters consider their slaves property, it read. If slaves don't meet their standards, they are disciplined. Beautiful slaves are prized the most. If slaves are not beautiful, both in looks and personality, they are killed or they do menial work. Once you are a Gorean slave, you lose all human rights. Slaves aren't seen as people. They are, according to Gorean followers, human animals. Masters make decisions for them. That was just the opening. It also described the need to brand women and to degrade them. So, although Elaine had been released from psychiatric care the day before she went missing, it looked like something had happened. Detective Garda Ulton Sherlock from Shankill Station went to Elaine's apartment to carry out a search. He found heavy metal chains on her bedside locker and a PVC dress, a gas mask and a rope. CCTV from her apartment complex would show that she'd left at 5.05pm with a phone in her hand, although her iPhone was still in her apartment. Elaine's blue Fiat Punto turned up on the avenue beside Shangana Cemetery car park, close to the coast. A jogger would remember her asking for directions to a footbridge, which led to a lane and onto the strand. A witness would recall a woman who matched Elaine's description, crying at a grave. Meanwhile, her two laptops, iPhone and a second iPhone with a broken screen, were removed from her apartment and sent to the Computer Crime Investigation Unit in Harcourt Square Station, along with an urgent request to download the data. A Coast Guard helicopter combed the shore for two days. Her devices remained in the CCIU until 13 months later. Sir had thought things were bad when, earlier that week, the Irish Independent had reported the discovery of skeletal remains believed to be female on Killikey Mountain, South Dublin, on his birthday. Now the discovery of possessions in Roundwood, more than 20 kilometres away, had given Gardy two massive breakthroughs in the case. If he'd one worry, it was when he'd first made contact with Elaine back in 2007 through the BDSM platform, Alt.com. He'd given away his profession and his date of birth, Architect 72. He needed to delete everything on his laptop, showing his interest in that lifestyle. And that meant getting rid of... It was just so hot walking along Grafton Street written in May 2005, about a woman walking around St. Stephen's Green in Dublin city centre who is approached by a man who grabs her by the throat and drags her into the undergrowth where he rapes her both vaginally and anally while a knife pressed to her throat draws blood. He wiped another personal favourite, a story about a female's BDSM encounter with her master in a hotel room. He got rid of the eight movie files kept in the same folder, titled First Stabbing, Second, Third Stabbing, 
after a third stabbing, pre-fifth stabbing, fifth stabbing, sixth stabbing and fake stabbing. Selecting a document called For Darcy, Doc, with the mouse, he opened a story he'd written entitled Killing Darcy and gave it one last read before he deleted it too. Months had gone by and soon the day would finally arrive. From the first email, I knew this one was special. I had always fantasised about killing ever since I was a teen and I got hard any time there was a knife in my hand wielding the power, knowing I could decide who lived and died, just like my hero, God. Every time I made love, I closed my eyes as I pushed myself in, wondering how it would feel for a hard, cold steel blade to push itself in, destroyed. John Dean O'Keefe, criminologist and lecturer in forensic psychology. Well, you know, when we talk about characters like Graeme Dwyer, um, there's a kind of a a rush towards uh, delineating their lives. In other words, that one part of their lives is entirely different to the other part. And in one sense, clearly it is. I mean, he is or was carrying on with a semblance of a family life, going to work, coming home, uh, paying occasional attention to his children and his wife, and his other life was very different, uh, as we know. But ultimately, the personality, and in his case, the personality disorder of the offender, such as Graeme Dwyer, remains the same. It just operates in different ways. So when he's outside, the psychopathic uh, personality type, uh, at least antisocial personality disorder, as it might be more clinically called, is fairly evident in his his lack of remorse, his lack of guilt, uh, and committing heinous acts, uh, sadistic and heinous acts. But if you like that, that will also almost certainly have been manifest light when he was at home. So that kind of coldness, lack of remorse and complete indifference to other human beings will have evidenced itself within the house. So there will have been lack of interest uh, in, in his children, lack of interest in his wife. But of course, this will all be covered up in the usual shallow emotions. In other words, it will be made to look occasionally as if he cares because that allows the whole picture to be complete and it allows the journey of the psychopath to continue. It, it's an appealing idea in a criminogenic way, this idea of the Jekyll and Hyde character. But in many ways, he's no different at home to the man who is outside. Having been at the trial and have uh, you know, examined him in some detail, I suppose, over the years, I think it would be highly unlikely that he does not fulfil the criteria for her psychopathy. So all the buttons that we've all heard about, grandiose sense of self-worth, catastrophic and inflated ego based on absolutely nothing, a lack of remorse, lack of guilt, and so on and so forth. Um, and certainly his conversations, both written and, and verbally, and indeed his actions would all indicate uh, psychopathy. Personality disorders generally are something that you're born with. Personality disorder means you have difficulty living with yourself and or others, and you never and consistently fail to learn from previous mistakes. Now, I know everybody's thinking, well, you know, I'm living with one of them, but you're not really, because there's about one in one in ten of the population might be suffering from a personality disorder. So if you overlay that on psychopathy, chuck in real lack of remorse, real lack of empathy, violence, and capricious and random behavior, 
That's what a psychopath is. So we, we need to understand what it is. You are born with it, but it is true to say, it is true to say that your social, your family factors and so on can have an influence. I think what normally happens is that it bleeds out into middle class pursuits. So, okay, you're not going uh, walking up a Collins Street ready to beat the head off somebody, but instead you do it on the rugby pitch or you do it in the uh, rugby club. And it becomes this kind of a kind of a normative story of a Saturday night out. God, you really lost the head last night, didn't you? But ultimately, it's the same. It's the same element of gratuitous and wanton violence as, you know, the niche character might be engaging in, in inner city Dublin. I mean, its outcomes are different, obviously, but really it's all about a repackaging. And middle class, middle income, better educated people are rather good at repackaging what they do into something more normative. So he will be able to play that game and indeed did play that game of working in a middle class uh, environment uh, with his middle income uh, you know, type of life. And that will be appealing to him. Graeme Dwyer is not going to start going into the uh, inner city of Dublin and start banging heads together and saying, you want some. You know, it's just not going to happen. But what he is going to do is going to be sly and manipulative and deceitful on, for example, work outings. As we know, he was. He he would go away for periods himself and people would wonder where he'd gone to. So his behaviours will just be different and that can be a function of your upbringing. Remember when we're thinking about Dwyer and people like him, as as Robert Hare says, the world expert on psychopathy, he doesn't think he's a star in the universe, he thinks he's the only star. So you see, we've moved on from confidence into something that's almost in the DNA. So there's no contrivance, right? So he won't, in my opinion, pick a vulnerable person because she makes him feel better. At least if that is a feeling he's getting, it's peripheral. The main feeling is I'm carrying out my, uh, what my DNA dictates I need to carry out. I need to, he's like a kitten playing with a ball of wool. That's the really good analogy. You play with it for a couple of seconds as a kitten, you throw it away and you move on. You're living in the second. That's what he's doing with her. It's not related to confidence as you or I would understand it. Because when we look at people like Dwyer, what do we do? We imagine ourselves, you know, we imagine people we know. We imagine people who have ups and downs, but they're generally part of that thing we like to call the human race. Well, that's your first mistake, because you can't be doing that. What you have to do is imagine somebody different, somebody outside the ordinary. And that becomes very difficult for us to do. People like Dwyer believe everything they're in. There's not a moment that he's going, oh, I don't know about that. You know, he, and it's not because he's confident or a genius. In fact, neither of those things apply. But that it's just in his DNA. So he just doesn't recognize that there's any difficulty with anything. He's living the dream. In some ways, there's a huge authenticity about psychopaths because they do not deviate at any moment from their disorder. It's always there. Personality disorders are enduring. That's really important. Like, you might be able to, in proper clinical environment, manage them somehow. But that's all you're ever going to do. And, and certainly, by the way, with psychopathy, it's almost impossible to manage. But there are attempts to do it. Um, so he is living a very... He's, he's living, as the young folk might say, he's living his best life. He really is. The problem is, we constantly, as is the human condition think of us if we went off the rails or we imagine somebody if no no you're, you're not dealing with the type of human being you're used to dealing with and i think once you understand that all bets are off 
Uh, and this person will drive, uh, you know, uh, he'll drive straight through you and he won't look back. That's not because he's cocky or confident in the way we ordinarily understand it. It's because he's disordered. That's why he'll do it. So none of the uh, anchor points that we have in life, that more normative human beings have in life, none of them will Graham Dwyer have. People are generally genuine in their emotions. I mean, you mightn't agree with them, you might hate them, all those other things, but you know what they're saying is authentic. That's probably a better way to put it. And it's the lack of authenticity we see in Dwyer and people like Dwyer that makes people like yourself go, I didn't do myself go, there's something just not right there. It was a short drive to the spot where I had prepared her grave, a place I would visit many times and ask forgiveness for what I had done. Sarah Sked had a degree in mathematics, a postgrad qualification in analytics, and she worked as a civilian crime and policing analyst in Garda headquarters. She'd been tasked with helping to identify the psychopath who the victim, Elaine O'Hara, was calling Sir in text message exchanges. Elaine had her iPhone synced to her computer, meaning even messages that had been deleted from the phone could be retrieved and some 2,344 texts were readable. They revealed disturbing contact with somebody listed as David 083 in her contacts. Gardy had since established that the David 083 number was registered to a Garoon Kashon with an address in Oaklawn, Clarahan, Tipperary. It had been bought as a prepaid Nokia 2730 on March 25th, 2011 at 15.22 in a shop on Grafton Street. The contact number listed for Garoon was 086 and he had made contact with Elaine within a couple of hours of the purchase, asking to start over. Elaine had texted back, I'm not into blood anymore. But he'd persisted. So, no more dark thoughts? Always have dark thoughts, but I'm able to cope with them now, she replied. Subsequent texts would reveal the extent of the man's bloodlust and determination to kill. He would at various times offer to give Elaine a baby in return for her helping him lure a victim to her death. At one point, he'd suggested an estate agent, a prostitute or an Asian woman who lived in Elaine's block and whose remains he plotted to carry out in a suitcase. What I want from you regarding the stabbing, one, be enthusiastic and encourage me. After all, it saves you from getting stabbed if it's someone else. Two, think of places it might be easy to do it. Three, work on the details of my ideas. Four, Prepare yourself for taking part. I might enjoy holding her down and watch you stab her a bit. Five, outdoor locations, woods, parks, graveyards. Six, indoor locations, empty house, prostitute's apartment, your apartment, a car. Think. Each time Elaine refused, he would tell her that she'd have to die instead. 
Her choice was to let him kill her or to help him find a victim. You will never kill me against my will. You've left too much evidence in my place. I'm not going to clean. She texted in a rare show of defiance. Looking forward to seeing your research on finding me a victim, he later persisted. What the hell do you think I'm doing, she texted back. Not doing it. Research to hell. No play, no research. The onslaught of manipulation, lies and terror tactics were relentless though. Sarah focused on the cell analysis, showing which masks the Garoon stroke David stroke Sir phone was pinging off and when. She believed, based on the activity, that the user was someone who lived in South Dublin and worked in the South City Centre, but so did a lot of people. The phone also had links to a water-damaged Nokia, which had been found by members of the Subaqua team in a follow-up search of the reservoir, along with a pair of glasses belonging to Elaine and more bondage gear. The SIM inside 086 had been cleaned and dried out. It had only one contact listed in its directory, another 086, and saved under the name of Master. Some texts could be retrieved and their contents suggested that Garoon stroke David stroke Sir owned it too. The master number was listed in Elaine's iPhone as David S2. The two Nokias were purchased in the same Grafton Street store that Garoon had purchased his device on the 30th of November 2011. Sarah honed in on a date, July 4th, 2012, When the master phone was pinging off masks in Galway and Dublin within the space of two hours, 11 minutes, she inferred that Sir must have used the M6 and the M4 motorway toll plazas to cover the distance in such a short amount of time. She filtered through the registration of vehicles passing through the tolls, looking for men who were South Dublin resident with a city centre workplace. The owner of a blue Audi TT registration 99G11850 seemed to fit the profile. His name was Graeme Dwyer. Graeme Dwyer also happened to have the exact same phone number, bar the prefix, that Garoon had given as a contact. It would also emerge that his sister lived in Clarehan, County Tipperary, where Garoon was supposed to have lived. Even the name Garoon Kashlam sounded a little bit like Gordon Shislam, who was an architect and a former associate of Dwyer's. Dwyer's work phone and 087 number was analysed. It had been pinging off the same cell sites as the Garoon and Master phones from Limerick to Donegal. On the day before Elaine disappeared, Dwyer's work phone was on Killakee Mountain. And the coincidences didn't stop there. Text exchanged with Elaine revealed that just like Graeme Dwyer, the individual variously called Garoon David Sir or Master had celebrated the birth of a daughter born on the same day, had placed fifth in a mobile aeroplane club's flying competition on the same day, had been hit by a 15% pay cut at the same time, had visited the Polish embassy on the same day, had emailed a tattoo artist about a tattoo in an intimate area at the same time Sir was ordering his slave to get one on her P. 
pubic area, had shared a preference for wearing polo necks, had to repair a car for the same amount of money. And really, as far as the laws of mathematical probability were concerned, Graeme Dwyer was the prime suspect. Now all the guardie had to do was put the evidence to him. Detective Sergeant Peter Woods, accompanied by a team of detectives, knocked at Graeme Dwyer's door at 7.06am on October 17th, 2013, to execute arrest and search warrants. The 41-year-old architect appeared almost immediately behind the glass, still in his pyjama bottoms. He was a short man with a jowly neck and hooded blue eyes. As Dwyer slid open the door, Woods held up his ID and introduced himself, adding, Can I come in? Dwyer stepped aside slowly. His petite, pretty, blonde-haired wife, Gemma, appeared in the hallway and asked what was going on. She was advised she would have to leave with the children as the house was about to be searched and she was very taken aback. I'm arresting you on suspicion of the murder of Elaine O'Hara, Wood said. In a pronounced South Dublin accent, the Cork man complained that he couldn't afford a solicitor when Woods advised him that he'd need one. And later, in Blackrock Garda Station, the member on duty, DS Gordon Wolfe, opened a custody record as per the treatment of persons in custody regulations. It was 7.41am. Wolfe took details of Dwyer's name, his address, his phone number, and then asked him if he'd any nicknames. Smiler. Dwyer responded, staring. Date of birth, Wolf asked. 13th of the 9th, 72. Height, 5 foot 10. It was D.S. Wolf's turn to stare in surprise. Later in the interview room, Dwyer appeared more concerned that the newspapers might say architect arrested for murder instead of mentioning the charges he was facing. You've big decisions to make. Woods replied. Don't make them based on your standing in the community. On the wall to Dwyer's left, five images of mobile phones were on display. A graph detailed their interaction. To Dwyer's right, CCTV stills showed him in Elaine's apartment block in Bellarmine Plaza on nine separate occasions. In one of them, he could clearly be seen leaving with the black and red rucksack on his back just like the one that had been found in the reservoir containing Elaine's belongings. In another, he was standing with Elaine O'Hara, waiting for the lift. I'm glad I'm not murdering anyone in any of those photographs, Dwyer commented. Peter Woods asked him if he ever went onto adult websites. I can see why you knocked on my door, that's better, Dwyer said. The same condescending attitude came through during his ongoing denials. Woods asked Dwyer what kind of films he liked to download on his phone and his computer, both of which had been seized during his arrest. Horror, he said eventually. I wouldn't say it was horror, Woods remarked. Describe it to me. Erotic horror. It's sort of art to do with horror. Please stop. I'm thinking of my wife and kids. My private life is my private life. But Dwyer's devices had revealed that he'd recently watched a woman being stabbed to death. 
I'm mortified, he said. I didn't kill anybody. I'm not guilty of any crime. Woods asked how he could get sexual pleasure from the subject matter. I believe you're trying to shock me, to upset me, Dwyer responded. Woods read aloud excerpts from the text between Sir and Elaine. This is really not turning me on, Dwyer said. Do you want to check? As Woods read the master texts about murdering Elaine in the woods, Dwyer reacted, You said it excites me. Do I have an erection? Woods put it to him that the DNA from a a cheek cell swab had matched semen stains on Elaine's mattress, which was also punctured with multiple stab cuts. I will not air my dirty laundry here if it's going beyond here, Dwyer said. I think I know what's coming next. I don't want my wife hurt. I know I didn't murder anyone. DS Woods changed tack. Gardy had travelled to Donegal and had interviewed Dwyer's ex-partner, Emer McShay. She wouldn't be friendly to me, the suspect said. Peter Woods read Dwyer, his former partner's statement, in which she said they'd met in college in the early 90s and that she'd given birth to their son, Senan, in 1992. She'd revealed that in 1994, Dwyer had confided in her that that he fantasised about stabbing a woman during sex. And after that, he'd started taking a kitchen knife into their bedroom and leaving it on the floor. Some weeks later, he began holding it in his left hand during sex. Do you want to say something? Woods prompted. I'd say she enjoyed that. She's delighted I'm in trouble, he said. Later, it would emerge that he'd stalked and terrorised his ex-partner in a campaign of harassment that had lasted more than a decade. Is she telling lies about you pretending to stab someone during sex? Woods asked. Ask my wife. Then equally hasty, he said, don't ask my wife, please get back to the murder. Faced with the relentless forensic and circumstantial evidence piling up against him, Dwyer finally admitted how he knew Elaine. She, she had some mental health problems and she wanted to be chained all the time. What did you meet her for? asked Woods. I suppose I wanted to meet her because I was stuck. I was hoping to try sex, but she wasn't very attractive. She would start to describe what she wanted to do and I'd do it. She wanted to be chained up, tied up, and there came a point where she cut herself and there was fresh blood. Now, I'm fascinated with all that, but it's, it's not a turn-on. Was it all about power? Was that the ultimate, Woods pressed? The level four interrogator, the highest tier, was so skilled at eliciting information in interview situations that he lectured on techniques to new recruits in Templemore Garda Training College. No, the ultimate thing for Elaine is that she wanted to be kept all day in a cage with a bowl of water. She was scarred from head to toe, Dwyer said. Woods asked what was in it for him. It's a perfect scenario. You wouldn't have to go through all the bullshit of dating. Did she ask you to do anything else? Said Woods. At one stage she asked me if I'd kill her.
The jury in the trial of Graham Dwyer was sworn in on January 19th, 2015. After a warning from Judge Paul Carney, he asked that they indicate in advance if they were squeamish. The trial presided over by Judge Tony Hunt following Carney's retirement would continue until March 27th, by which time the evidence of 197 witnesses had been heard and 362 items had been entered as exhibits. Graeme Dwyer pleaded not guilty. Members of the public had to be excluded from the court when 11 videos recovered from Dwyer's computers and storage devices were played in court because they were so graphic in nature. In the first clip, Dwyer pretended to stab himself in the leg, then said groggily, I'm just after waking up from having knocked myself out with chloroform. I've very little recollection of what happened. I remember exhaling out and getting a warning sign and waking up with a pounding noise in my head, like a headache and a loud noise. Other movie clips showed him having sex with Elena Hara and tightening a plastic bag over her head with a plastic cable, causing her to go limp and to fall to one side. He'd also filmed himself stabbing Elaine while masturbating over her. The muffled sounds she made while being knifed, she duct tape over her mouth, were horrific. Dwyer dismissed her agonised cries by saying, shh, 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 it's not that bad. Other videos showed Dwyer using knives during sex with other women. One entitled Attempted Breast Stab features a woman whose identity was obscured and whose hands were bound by handcuffs. Another video showed him holding his knife to a woman's neck during sex. Graeme Dwyer's wife, Gemma, testified for the state. She struggled with her composure as she answered the questions about the man she'd met studying in Bolton Street DIT in the 1990s. However, when it came to evidence about a garden spade found near Elaine's remains in September 2013, she was resolute. It's the spade from our garden, she said flatly. She'd noticed it was gone because she used it to clean up dog dirt. It could be seen in a photo taken in her back garden and had the same sort of orangey-red paint spatters near the handle. She broke down when asked about a letter her husband had sent from prison dated February 28th, 2014, telling her not to believe the guardie and admitting that he did know that awful girl. He also wrote that he believed the killer liked Real Madrid and wore pink underwear. An American woman called Darcy Day also testified for the state through a video link. She had been sexually abused as a child and had struggled, she explained. Using the name Cassie, she'd fantasised about dying online, which was where she'd met Graham Dwyer. They'd sent each other poetry and he sent her diagrams of the arteries in question so he would not miss. He'd told her about Elaine O'Hara and claimed she wanted him to do the same. Graham Dwyer did not take the stand and when the jury returned with a guilty murder verdict on the afternoon of March 27th, 
2015, he showed no emotion. Incredibly, he released a statement after the trial to thank his legal team and family, friends and colleagues for their unwavering support. To the members of the media, I'm grateful for the privacy you have afforded both my family and people close to me during the trial. I now respectfully ask that you continue to respect their privacy and I confirm that there will be no further comment by my family or myself concerning this case whatsoever, he added. There was no mention of Elaine O'Hara. Graeme Dwyer is serving out his life sentence in the Midlands prison. The effect of the European Court of Justice ruling that mobile phone data retention and access is illegal could now take another seven years to resolve in the courts. Experts believe it is extremely unlikely that it will prove enough to secure his release given the extensive forensic and circumstantial evidence in the case. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.